This is Rosie Starr for Radio Catskill. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Keith Hubbard's Star Talk highlights the winter solstice. Dick Reisling shares his background, inspiration, and knowledge about his part in the practice of education at Apple Pond Farm. Dick took the time to speak with me earlier this year at Apple Pond Farm in Calicoon Center. All of that coming up on today's Farming Country, but first, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. Elon Musk has reinstated most journalist Twitter accounts he had suspended days earlier, sparking intense criticism. NPR's Amy Held reports the new Twitter CEO said he reversed course because of an online poll. The people have spoken, Musk tweeted early Saturday Eastern time. He was referencing a Twitter poll in which a majority of respondents said the accounts should be unsuspended now rather than in a week. So several journalists with The New York Times, CNN and others are back on Twitter. Though Musk accuses them of doxing or endangering him by publicizing his whereabouts. They had tweeted about an account putting out the publicly available flight data for Musk's private jet. But at least one journalist with Business Insider who has reported critically about Musk was still suspended. Musk has championed himself as a free speech advocate, but the U.N. was among those pointing out his silencing of journalists on the platform sets a dangerous precedent. Amy Held, NPR News. The Democratic National Committee says it plans to return campaign contributions made by Sam Bankman-Fried. He's charged with fraud and conspiracy related to his cryptocurrency company FTX, The Securities and Exchange Commission says he illegally diverted billions of dollars of investor money to pay for campaign contributions, as well as for his personal use. Regulators in California have approved new climate change measures designed to get the state closer to being carbon neutral faster. Kevin Stark with member station KQED reports the state wants to eliminate the use of nearly all fossil fuels. It's a roadmap. It calls for slashing emissions and ramping down the state's use of fossil fuels almost entirely. They've been negotiating this for many months, and the Air Board approved it in a unanimous vote. Central to this plan is a commitment to stop building new gas power plants and building out a cleaner power grid. It calls for quadrupling the capacity for wind and solar. Kevin Stark reporting. Starbucks workers across the country are continuing a strike this weekend as they push to unionize. NPR's Leo Kalitri has more. More than a thousand baristas at about a hundred stores are walking out, including at the flagship roastery in Seattle. The three-day strike is the latest effort by Starbucks Workers United to protest what they claim are unfair labor practices, including understaffing, the closing of unionized stores, and the company refusing to negotiate. More than 260 Starbucks stores nationwide have voted to unionize over the past year, but none have secured a contract. Starbucks blames Workers United for the lack of progress at the bargaining table, but it says it remains focused on working with the union to move the process forward. Lydia Kalitri, NPR News. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. 
This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farm and Country. Coming up on today's show, Dick Reisling shares his background, inspiration, and knowledge about his part in the practice of education at Apple Pond Farm. Dick took the time to speak with me earlier this year at Apple Pond Farm in Calicoon Center. But first, here is Keith Hubbard with this week's Star Talk report. Thank you for joining us on Radio Catskill for this week's locally produced Farm and Country. country. I'm Keith Hubbard and this is Star Talk. At 4:48 p.m. Wednesday afternoon, the sun will reach the lowest point in the sky for the year, marking the winter solstice. At its highest point in the sky, the sun will be only 25 degrees above the horizon. The solstice marks the beginning of the winter season for us. The good news for those of us who don't like the cold days and long dark nights is winter is the shortest season. We measure the seasons as the time between a solstice and an equinox, or vice versa. The time between the winter solstice in December and the vernal equinox in March is 89 days. Contrast that with the time between the summer solstice in June and the autumnal equinox in September, which is 94 days. The reason for this time difference is that Earth is closest to the Sun in early January. As a result, Earth moves the quickest in its orbit at that time. The winter solstice is the shortest day of the year, meaning we see the fewest hours of sunlight. Today, we will see just 9 hours and 6 minutes of sunlight. The fact that the amount of sunlight we see fluctuates throughout the year is a result of the tilt of the Earth's axis. The Earth's axis is tilted 23.5 degrees from vertical and is currently tilted away from the Sun. It is the tilt of Earth's axis, and not the distance from the sun, that ushers in the cold temperatures. Celebrate the winter solstice as the shortest day of the year. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future Star Talk segments, my email address is startalk at farmandcountry.org. For Farm and Country and Star Talk, this has been Keith Hubbard reminding you to keep looking up. Celestial greetings. I'm Keith Hubbard, writer and producer of Star Talk for Farm and Country. Thank you for listening to us, supporting us, and truly making WJFF your community radio station. Have a safe and festive holiday season and a happy new year. This is Rosie Starr. Earlier this year, I drove into the hills outside Jeffersonville, New York, to visit Apple Pond Educational Farm. Today we'll hear from Dick Reisling, who shares his background, inspiration, and knowledge about his part in the practice of education at Apple Pond Farm. Hello, everybody. This is Dick Reisling. My background would include being one of six children, born to uh, parents in Illinois, 40 miles southwest of Chicago, my father was a truck driver, and his work was to pick up the flowers from the fresh flower growers, 
We had to leave at 3 o'clock in the morning and get into Chicago on the south side where the flower market, wholesale markets were, by 7 o'clock. And that was the how he started his business uh, when I was born. He was in his 50s when I was born, so he did many things before that, including uh, fighting in World War One. And uh, my mother was a very young woman. She was only 19, when, 18, 19 when she was married. So that's the background. The town's called Batavia, founded by people from Batavia in New York. And uh, I went to school there, um, to high school. And uh, then I was very gifted with an opportunity to go to Yale University. And I wanted so much to get away and find out what the world was really like. So I stayed at Yale for eight years, did a degree in international affairs, and did a degree in the Divinity School, but is basically based on a study mainly of the law and international affairs, and peace studies, basically. Then I did a degree in international law and diplomacy at the Fletcher School of International Law and Diplomacy, and then I did a degree in public administration and and masters in public administration. That's the educational background, and then I basically tried to unlearn almost everything I learned because as I went through different experiences in uh, my employment life, I learned that most of that wasn't really true, and a lot of it was actually an excuse not to pay attention to what I felt from my own life was something, a, a very different narrative. And that's the narrative that, as I would say it now, from your wonderful question to start this interview, why do you farm? I farm because I want to find out how things really work. What is a better approximation of the truth? Just an approximation, because truth is never the truth. It's our best guess, and there's a thousand, a million guessers. If we would just learn to put it all together, we might actually come to some better understanding that we have now. But for the moment, and there's not many moments left, I think for the human species in my own mind, maybe 200 years or so, and then we'll be gone. I hope so. So the earth has a more gentle and more loving and a more understanding and more steward, uh, better stewards of, of her magnificence is that we need to come up with a very different understanding of our connection and our role in nature. We are a part of nature. There is nature, and there's nothing else. There's only nature. But you don't miss a thing. You have everything. So while I was delighted to be involved through the National Council of Churches and the UN in some engagement with the Vietnam War and the great struggle for civil rights with the the magnificent Mr. King, and he was so smart, he brought together the international calls for justice in Vietnam and also the racial inequalities here in the United States, and he named the most violent country in the history of the human race. It's called the United States of America. And so that hurt me, and it just galvanized me, and I said, I have got to do something different. So I tried some different things, and then the idea came, wow, what is the thing that the Americans are good at? I can't keep saying negative things. It hurt my soul, and it you know wasn't good for other people to listen to me. And I like to talk. I like to hear about people's stories. And stories, I think, are the most wonderful thing in the world. I thought, well, farming, there's something we're really good at. Oh, no. We were, but we're not. 
This is the time when bigger is better and all that kind of thing. And that's a notion that's totally anathema to, to nature. Nature is majestic and grand and universal, but it is, it's so specific, it's so minute. You can hold in your hand a billion parts of a billion different organisms that all together became me. And they are part of my body inside. And so that means I'm a part of them. And there's all these stories out there. So I became a farmer because I wanted to learn. And the main thing is, I felt better. I really felt better. I felt I was really in connection with a lot of things. And then it all got summed up. Uh, Mr. Jefferson, who I always loved, Thomas Jefferson, he said, you know, agriculture, among other things, is the noblest of all professions. But above all, it's the most humorous. It is fun. Yeah, not always fun. It's your curiosity is always stimulated. You're never filled up, but there's always sufficiency in every encounter with nature that's good and positive, and it's on the path toward truth for the human being. So farming, I think, makes every person a better person. So whether it's democracy, whether it's loving, whether it's giving care, whether it's learning, and a whole bunch of other things, or having fun, or just the magnificent beauty of the earth, and especially where you and I live, you can't beat it. Farming is just the place to be. Your insight is very noble, and I appreciate everything you say. Now tell us about your farm, what you do here, and the challenges that you're facing now. Well, Apple Pond Farm was started in 1973 when Sonia and I took title to the place. It was a completely uninhabitable place. You could hardly not even walk through the land. It was so full of brabble bushes and things like that. It had been vacant for more than 30 years. The buildings were in complete disrepair and uninhabitable, but it was affordable. <laughs> it was guarded by a fence around it, and in the back pasture, it was a junkyard for cars and trucks but it was something we could afford we both worked for the church and uh, had very very small salaries i didn't even own a car ourselves, so we borrowed a car to come up here for a while but it stuck to our heart right away so what are we going to do we're going to learn this thing about farming and so we were still living in the city we lived in a commune in the city, and it was a wonderful, wonderful commune that we lived in. And that also helped us save money so we could we could make some investments here and get a building up and re rehabilitated the buildings that were here over the years. So we started with a goat, shenanigans, which he was solely full of. And then we started with horses, and we had a wonderful history with horses here. We bred 143 horses here, mainly draft horses and created a breed that honored the Native Americans who were the best stewards of this land. It's now a registered breed in the United States. It's the North American Painted Draft Horse. And they're a three to five breed horse, all put into one, so they're beautifully painted horses, but they're big. They're as big, if they're actually as tall as the Budweiser horses, Clydesdale, but they're 
bigger. They're much heavier boned and and uh, not so athletic and balletic. We don't want them dancing through the fields. We want them pulling through the fields. And until a, a recent uh, injury here, they were our main source of power. Sadia is a wonderful shepherd. She got into sheep, and then she got into goats, and then she got into dogs, and then we got into organic vegetables. Now, challenges, uh, main things were aging out. The physical body just cannot do all the things that it needs to do, and the mind never can capture all the things that it should do, so you become more aware of some of those deficits. Here comes one of the farm singers. They sing off-key, but they sing a lot. And they don't know many songs, but uh, they're very repetitious, but they're cute as a button. So one of the little baby lambs is sitting over here, <laughs> and he must have got out. That's it. You see how curious it is. They're loving. They're cute. You just fall in love in five minutes, and, you know, it's really a, it's really a great, great thing. And it happens spontaneously all the time. And instead of saying, oh, get the blankety-blank back in there, you say, ah, isn't that sweet? Isn't that wonderful? And, uh, you know... Human beings don't do that enough. We don't welcome the unexpected and see the beauty in it, and you know, and because it's not something we thought of, you know, or, or or for whatever reason. So that's one of our challenges. There's always the challenge of talking to uh, people about farming and getting them to pay attention, because there's been a loss of respect, and that loss of respect is simply, I think, because there's been a, a loss of contact and how to get schools and the children especially to get them to understand children this is your nature you are wonderful and when somebody gets mad at you and a lot of adults get mad at kids in the store and all other kinds of places don't you ever think that you're not truly wonderful but you can't say that and then say yeah you know which happens a lot and we live in a society that is not supportive of, of this this kind of human development we are a human we're an animal we're a sapien. And there were six different sapien groups. Maybe the wrong one is the only one to survive, but the Homo sapiens is the only one we've got, and that's us. So we got to make the best of it. And the best place to be to make the best of that, right here or anywhere in nature where you can pick it up, you can even taste it, you can smell it. And if you don't smell it, and if you don't have it in your hands, and you don't mix yourself with it, which is, the, which is the goal. From dust, we're going back to dust. There's no question about that. What a lovely thing. What a lovely way to, to complete the whole circle of life. Dick, you, your farm is noted for sustainable energy and educational energy. Talk a little bit about that. It took us a long time to get onto that. But in 2002, we decided, well... We'll have to keep finding some other thing to see if we can find more people to come here. We did a lot of educational work around ecology and about farming. And then we saw, wow, this is time itself. You know, the kind of things that geniuses like Einstein and other people think about a lot. So we all have to get invested in that because we are the problem. So we have to be the source of the solution. That's our responsibility. We started with a wind turbine. We have a 120-foot tower with a 10-kilowatt uh, turbine that would basically power about two people, depending on the wind speeds. And we have uh, 12 and a half kilowatts of uh, solar electric. Once the most expensive, now the cheapest, and everybody who doesn't have one is losing money. 
because there's a program in New York State, in Pennsylvania, for every synagogue, every bowling alley, everything you can shake the stick at, there is a program for it that requires almost no money down. It's self-financing from day one. A lot of people don't have access to that, but I've done 60 or 70 workshops on that. And everybody leaves with a design program for themselves. There's no cost for these kinds of things. So we have solar electric. So we have solar thermal. We have a solar thermal greenhouse that we just filled up with plants because it's been cold and wet. Then this spring has been a very challenging spring. And then we have heat pumps instead of furnaces uh, so that we're energy independent, except now that I can't work the horses because I can't keep up with them. I have a tractor. I know this is on the radio, but if you can see me, I'm frowning as I'm talking. It hurts me to say it, and I hide my tractor as much as I can. You'll see it's over here, but it's not sweet like the horses and wonderful and noble like the horses are because they're so smart and so stalwart and, and that sort of thing. But nonetheless, we have the renewable energy systems, and they save us about $7,000 a year, which is over 25% of our actual annual cash flow income. And they also take care of a lot of the effluent not going in and poisoning things, poisoning us and poisoning other people that come here and poisoning the plants who have their own rights, which is we've never codified into law. But, but the next generation may actually write the law, the civil right or the natural right of the animals themselves and that sort of thing. So uh, there's so many challenges there. We've had over 300 interns, most of them from other parts of the world, from 27 countries. And that's been the, the great part of the labor power for our farm. And um, they are next to our children. They're our extended family, and they've helped us. We've learned a lot from them. We, uh, we hear from them a lot, and some come to visit each year, and all of that's very good. For the future farmers of America, what do you have to say to them? Congratulations. You have chosen perhaps the most important, but let's compete to be better than we were the day before. Or maybe don't even compete, but emulate, uh, stimulate, inspire other people by example, not by uh, assertion or, or other antics that are so much a part of the, uh, of the American presentation to the world. You don't have to worry about things in nature and farming because anybody gives it a chance, they're going to love it. As long as you don't buy into the thing that you have to buy all the time. No, produce yourself. There's something wonderful about having chickens and your own eggs. From the fact that you don't have to get in the car when you say, Oh, Eddie so-and-so is coming, or Josh's boyfriend is, or girlfriend is coming, something like that, you know. That's not the only thing. But you look at it, it's much more golden. It's much more robust in its taste. It is, in fact, not all things are this way organically, but it is more nutritious, and it requires a little bit different kind of heat flame to it. And it's the same with everything. Raise some of your food. And each one of these are avenues to understanding what is nature talking to us about, because the nature is a living thing. The planet, Earth, is, is the only place that we know of, that we know of. There could be a million of them full of life, but this is the only one that we know that's full of life, and it's definitely the only one that we know. This is the only place we've ever been. And so we really want to say, try as a farmer to listen. It, I mean, your mom and dad are always going to tell you that when you're a kid, but 
who do you listen to? Choose to listen more to nature, to the smells, to the aromas, to the to the sound, to the whistling, and the, all the different uh, melodies and music. Listen to the birds and all that kind of thing. The greatest of the composers, they got every bit of that from, you know, how does an eight-year-old Bach or Chopin or some of these other people, how do they learn to compose all this music when they're six or eight years old? They're especially wired. What are they wired to? They're wired to the birds, and they're wired to the rivers and to the stream and that sort of thing. That's where it comes from. That's what they're feeding back to us, and we thank them for that. Um, but we need to be reminded, there's a special place to always go, and, and that's at a farm. And boy, I never knew any of this. I never heard about any of this, even though both of my parents were raised on farms, and they had no sense of pride in it. Before we close, is there something else you'd like to add to our conversation? Something I carry from my religious tradition, which is old, and I don't like its content, but I like its rhythms. I like to live liturgically. What I mean by that is, if you're a farmer, you are in connection with growing. So you, you know about that soil. And you know when things are different there. So you, it's one of the greatest sources of knowledge. It's like the greatest library. And it's, it's just coming to you. You don't have to turn it on. It's trying to turn you on, trying to turn us on. Here, listen, listen, listen. I got problem over here. You know, the doggone broccoli for this year was not getting along with the uh, eggplant. Eggplant's always a problem. So maybe you can figure that out for us. Uh, but if you see it, you, you can tell these stories because that's the natural cue from them. Look, I, I need some attention over here. So all of that's uh, the kind of thing. And don't let this be undersold. You can go for a week. Go visit a farmer. Go stay at a farm. And really realize how very important it is that you do this and realize that you're the smallest part of it. You're the steward. You are the servant. You minister to their needs. And it's the best trade in the world because, you know, does anybody out there have a pet? You have a cat. You love your cat. You know it. It clears a bell. You know, the wife, the kids, oh, sometimes they drive me nuts. The cat, y'all just love them. It's unconditional. And guess what? Is anybody listening could say, aren't I always in a deficit? I feel it. I know it. My experience is that dog loves me more than I love it. That's just a fact. It's a trade. If you, if you live with nature, you will be have a, a life that you'll just giggle about. It's so full of, of wonderful things. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, your insight, and your knowledge with this project and for our listeners. Thank you, Dick. Thank you, Rosie Starr. <laughs> Dick Reisling and Apple Pond Farm is part of the project Why I Farm that is on display in December at the Digital Gallery at the Union in Narrowsburg, New York. This production highlights the inspiration of local farmers Why I Farm is curated by Pat Carullo with photography by Woody Goldberg and audio interviews by Radio Catskill volunteer Rosie Starr.
hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by Radio Catskill volunteer Keith Hubbard. Special thanks goes to our guest, Dick Reisling, from Apple Pond Educational Farm in Calicoon Center, New York. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening local to Farm and Country and supporting Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit, taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org Hey, it's Danielle Kurtzleben from NPR, and I bet there's something on your to-do list you've been putting off. Maybe it's a haircut or a car wash. Listen, no judgment. But I promise getting it done will take so much less time than you've spent thinking about not doing it. I'm betting that donating to this station is on your list, and there is no better time than right now. So go do it. Here's how. Make your year-end tax-deductible donation at wjffradio.org. Anderson Cooper's new podcast is a 